So, uh, I'll just go in order from top to bottom based on timing um, and go from there. And then if some seem to be similar, um, I might uh, go back. So the first question is, um, can the devil give us thoughts or are we creators of our thoughts and the devil influences them? Uh, both of them um, actually can happen. So, um, the devil is a spiritual being and we are spiritual beings, but we just happen to also have a body. So the devil can interact with our spirit as a spiritual being um, and, 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 and plant seeds of thoughts or plant thoughts. And he can also interact with the physical world. But he also um, can influence thoughts that we've articulated in the sense that um, the devil can't, um, from what I from what I've received, the devil can't read your mind. Um, having said that, the devil has five six thousand years of experience dealing with humans, so he often has a good sense of what we are probably thinking um, about things, um, and that's actually one of the reasons I think somebody actually ends up asking questions somewhere um, about it is that uh, you got we're advised sometimes to be careful about articulating certain things out loud so that the devil is not aware of them um, so that he can't uh, influence things. So it, it can be um, both. I, I don't know that it could ever be an exact science to be honest, um, but that's what it appears to be the case. Uh, can you speak about how to turn loneliness in the direction of God? I don't know if I totally understand the meaning of this. Um, because if, if you believe that God is all present at all times, then you know that you're not actually ever alone. Um, having said that, uh, humans can experience loneliness, right? That's not, that's not a foreign thing that we can feel. And so... What, what I guess you could do to direct loneliness in the direction of God is what one of my spiritual fathers said to me once, which is to identify with Christ in Gethsemane, right, when he was abandoned. Um, and so it's, it's, to, it's to say, okay, Lord, now I, I'm, I'm present with you in the garden when your friends were asleep and they weren't there. Um, and that was your hour of agony, and they weren't there to comfort you. And so you only spoke to the Father because that was all that you had. And, and it seems to me that the Lord wanted them there. He asked them to come, right? Like he, he said, please come with me. And then he even said, like, can you guys just stay up for like a little bit? Because um, I'm kind of suffering here. So, um, and they still slept. So one is to know that you're, you're, you're not alone. But I'd also say that, remember that your love of God is also expressed through your love of others, and so that means that when you're alone, why not reach out to other humans too, right? So like there's nothing wrong with, with calling out friends and saying, I'm lonely right now and I could use company because admitting your weakness is first of all, being human, 
Um, and second of all, is that you're, you're allowing yourself the position of humility to receive comfort. So I think a lot of people would rather be in the giving situation and not admit that they actually need people. But we do sometimes need people. Um, and that's not less from God. That's not divorced from God. That's why God said, when, you, when I was hungry and you fed me, when I was in prison and you visited me, it was doing it to me. Like whatever you did to everybody, you're doing it to me. And so sometimes we're on the receiving end and sometimes we're on the giving end and that's holy. There's nothing wrong with that. So I would say that in addition to turning the heart towards God, speaking to God, directing your position to God, also saying, Lord, I'm in need of comfort and I am going to reach out. I would like company. Okay, there's, there, that's still from God. That's still turning in the direction of God. Um, how do we know if something was God's will and we rejected it? I won't spend a long time on that because last week was all about God's will. Um, but what I would say is that if something was really God's will, like a specific thing, it would be really shocking to me if you missed the bus. Okay, because like I said, when God wants something very specific, he says it. He's not afraid to say it. Um, and so... If he was really trying to say something, I doubt that you didn't hear him. And like we said before, if you heard it and ignored it, it's not the end of the world either way. Um, so I'm not gonna, like, if, uh, maybe if you can follow up in the Zoom chat with what you mean by it. I don't wanna spend a long time on it, forgive me, um, just because the whole talk last week was devoted only to that. Um, so I wanna, I wanna not uh, go there, but I might not be getting your point. So feel free to, um, to follow up. Uh, with what it should have be, with, with what you meant. Uh, how do we help a parent with a mental illness like depression? So first of all, you need to know your role as a child. Okay, because I think that sometimes we overstep our roles with good intentions and we start trying to parent our parents and that's not okay. Right, so you can't become a parent to your parent. You can't become a parent to your sibling. You're always going to remain a sibling. So always know your role. So because if you think that it's your role to parent them, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to go nuts. Sorry, because you're going to feel responsible. You're going to feel really down. You're going to feel incompetent. You're going to feel like you're failing. You're going to feel like they might get injured or harmed or hurt, et cetera, because of you. Um, and all of that is going to weigh down on you. So you have duties as a, as, a, as a child. I'm not saying you have no duty towards it. But what you can say is, like, is, is first of all, you know, know the context of relation to them with what you can and can't say. So, for example, if you're able to say, mom or dad, I'm really worried about you. You seem really, really down. Have you thought about talking to somebody? Um, it's just like this doesn't seem like it's been bothering you for um, a day or two or a week or two or a month or two. It seems like it's been really, really weighing down. Maybe it would be good to talk to somebody. Who? Depends on, again, the nature of your relationship. I know that mental illness has a stigma with some people um, culturally. And actually with a lot of people, it doesn't. Like it's not like it's a, a one size fits all. If you know that they're willing 
um, then I'd say, okay, well, have you thought about talking to maybe a Christian therapist? Um, have you thought about talking to this? If you know that that's something your parents might not be open to, I would send them to a priest because most of them are open to talking to a priest because the priest might be able to more effectively say, I think you should do this, right? And I know so-and-so, or I can do so-and-so, and they can address sometimes the stigmas that people feel about it um, a little bit more effectively sometimes than we can um, with, our, with, with our parents if that's what go, what's going on. But then I'd also say, so that's in terms of trying to get them to the right help because you also shouldn't diagnose them because it's not your job to diagnose. Your opinion could be totally right and it could be totally wrong, right? So don't, don't also overstep your boundaries as a human and say for sure they have this or this or this. You don't know that for sure. You could be mistaken. That's why it's important to be the right person. But in your, in your own scope as a child, right? Try and help in the way that you can. Make life easier around the house or make it more difficult, right? Be a good listener instead of always arguing, right? Those are, I think, more effective ways of, of being a participant as a child than just throwing ideas around. Um, especially our generation, I'm sorry. We think, forgive me, and myself including, included, we really think we know everything. Um, and we really think that our advice is gold and that we know exactly what's going on. And often we don't, okay? Because sometimes what we think is something might be really and actually just like a, a cultural issue. So I would say seek the right help, encourage them in the way that you can and be as cooperative as you can and don't overstep your boundaries as a kid in any direction so that you don't get hurt as well. And also so that you don't make a whole situation um, even, even worse. I think even more importantly is that you get the right help, that you also get the right advice so that you, you feel not overly stressed and not overly responsible um, in your own situation. Because that by itself can be really, really difficult. I've seen lots of people, like lots of people carry burdens that they're not supposed to bear and take on roles that they're not supposed to take and, it, and, it, and it's, it's heavy, like it's very heavy. So make sure that you also have um, that right support. Um, uh, doo -doo -doo -doo. Uh, how to make an atheist know God? A friend of mine is struggling to find or believe in God, and I'm trying to help him, but it's not really working. Um, you need to know, first and foremost, it's not on you to make sure that the person believes in God. You should care um, that the person believe in God, okay? Um, you should want them to believe in God. You should do your, your, your part. But it's also, at the end of the day, not your job to ensure that they do. They have their own will. They have their own mind. They have their own intellect, and that must be respected, as must yours, okay? So I think number one is that you need to know why you believe in God, like first and foremost. And you don't, oh, we were having a conversation earlier actually tonight with uh, some of the Ottawa crew about this, this topic. You don't, um, 
you don't have to answer them the way they like. Okay, and by that, what I mean is that um, today's society favors a certain kind of intellect. And it's not the only intellect, right? And so people, sometimes atheists come, and I've, I've had my own struggles with doubt, so I'm not saying this from a, a self-righteous position or even bothered that there are people who don't believe. That's normal. That's not my issue here. What I'm trying to say is that there seems to be this, this tendency now that a non-believer is allowed to demand a believer to do and say and, and conduct themselves in a certain way. You don't owe that. Okay? And so you need to know that so that you're at peace when you're dealing with somebody. Right? So, for example, somebody earlier was saying that their friend um, is saying, I'm going to read this book, but you have to read this book. And I was saying, no, I don't. I don't have to read that book. Like, since when do I owe that to you, right? If my friend comes up to me and says, I'm thinking of buying a Honda, I'm going to look up Hondas, and you better look up Toyota or Honda or whatever. No, I don't. I don't owe you that at all. I'm not trying to buy a car. You are, right? So know, know that you don't owe something like that the person demands of you because sometimes we feel this pressure like we're supposed to. No, we don't. What you should try and do is know why do you believe in God? For some people, that's going to be very intellectual. For some people, it's going to be more visceral and spiritual. For some people, it's because of their experience. For some people, it's because of an example in their life. For some people, and, and those are not lesser and better than one another. Okay? And so that you don't feel this duty of like, oh my gosh, I don't know what he's talking about with this philosophy. That's okay. You don't have to know that. But you have to know the, the reason that is within you. You need to know the reason, as St. Peter says, um, of, of why that's happening. Okay? Um, so that's the first thing. Know why. Two is to, is to also maybe where you don't know, to know where to point people. Where you can say, okay, I don't, I'm not really the expert on this, but I know somebody who knows this really well. Okay? Um, so that you're ready to, to point them in certain directions. Because, for example, imagine if someone says, I demand you to tell me why this plug works when I plug it in. Why this device works when I plug it in. I'm not an electrician. I'm not an engineer. I don't know. I know the basics. I know that electricity does something. I don't have to be plugged in. I know that shoving my finger in a socket is dangerous. But do I know which way the current is going and how to measure it and what it means? No, I don't. Right? So that's okay. That's why we have specialists who do know that. So that when it needs to be asked, we can go to them. Right? So I would say in addition to you doing your best to know why you believe, I would say also know who to send people to for those things. And third, um, and these are not in order of importance, these are just different points. Um, is to be a Christian, right? Because if, if Christianity to you is just a, a concept, 
then, then a person is just going to want to debate concepts. But when they can see that there's something real about you, it begs the question of why do you do that? Right? That's what begs the question. Right? Because by being, by being real, that is itself a big testimony. Right? Of being able to say, but this person isn't the same. And I get that there are people of other faiths that are also not the same. No problem. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that by itself. I'm also saying no why. Okay. But be different. Be the light of the world. Right. That's what Christ is saying. Because when you're light, when the light shines in darkness, darkness sees that the light got turned on. Right. And so things become clear because the light's on. So we have to be that. Which is why if you're not living the gospel, good luck, good luck. Because then, then you're not going to go anywhere. Fourth is prayer. Like actual praying. And, 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 and I don't like that prayer is discounted these days like it's a non-action. If you really believe, then prayer should be a big deal to you. And if you're actually praying, God can step in. Right? God won't override their human will. God doesn't do that. God respects everybody's freedom. Right? But we've, we've, we've got to be doing our part. The other thing that I would say is, instead of being on the defensive, sometimes it's good to ask the questions. And, by, and I'm, I'm not saying offensive because that sounds like I mean antagonistic, and I don't mean that. But if asking the person, what is your obstacle to belief? As opposed to you defending belief, asking the other person, what is it that makes you think this is impossible? So that you can help them see where their thinking might not be consistent. Right? So, for example, most people today in this post-enlightenment world want things to make sense. That begs the question of God by itself because if you want something to make sense you might not realize that what you're saying is i believe there is such thing as truth because if there's no such thing as truth then nothing makes sense the only reason we can make sense of anything is because there are absolutes an engineer can't build that there were such thing as constants Right? There's gravity, there's physics, there's the speed of light, there's all this stuff. And if they didn't exist, you couldn't ever predict making a building. It wouldn't make sense. If there wasn't some objective sense to the way humans interact or to the human body, there'd be no such thing as psychology and there'd be no such thing as medicine. Because it would mean, okay, rub a tree on you, rub a plant on you, rub a glass on you, and they're all the same. But they're not all the same. Because there are such things as objective truths. And a lot of people don't recognize that. And so by helping them ask that of saying, so are you trying to say that you think it's impossible for there to be objective truth? Or are you, what you really saying is, I'm not sure what the objective truth is. Because those are two different worldviews. One is true atheism, which is not as common as people would like to think. 
a lot of atheists don't realize they're not really atheists. Okay. Um, versus being an agnostic versus being a skeptic. These are different positions. So by helping people ask the right questions, right? Or for example, if they say, oh, it's not that I don't believe that. It's just like, look how disgusting and corrupt the church is. Then ask them if that objectively makes sense. Are you saying that because there are stupid people in the church, therefore church is stupid? Well, I know a lot of stupid atheists, stupid Buddhists, stupid Hindus, stupid a lot of people. There's a lot of stupid people in the world. We don't, we don't assess truth based on individual stupidity or group stupidity, right? That's illogical, okay? So it's, it's helping people with their thinking um, is what I think. And so I actually think Christians have a much bigger duty than we used to of learning how to think critically. If you want to help your friends, learn how to be a critical thinker in a good way so that you can identify thoughts, so you can have a real discussion. Um, because most, what appears to be the assumption of many is that Christians are morons. Help that not be true. Be a Christian who's not a moron. Okay. Um, and by doing so, you'll help them see that there is merit to what we're saying. Okay. And the last thing I'll say, sorry for spending so much time on this is understand that we don't have a rational faith. Okay, because blind faith is not what we're called to. I can believe, I can have faith that I could tightrope walk across Niagara Falls on my first try and not die. And statistically speaking, the odds are not zero. They might be extremely close to zero, but they're not zero. But I think most of us would agree that that's stupid. Okay? And so Christianity is not calling us to be stupid. If it was, then we would need to believe that God didn't intentionally give us a rational mind, but he did. In fact, he only gave us that gift. None of the other animals got it. Okay, so understand that and learn that, and then you can be a different example, I think, to other people. And in this time, in this age, we have a greater responsibility towards that. 20 years ago, when it was more or less a Christian world, it's not anymore. That responsibility wasn't as severe because we all lived in a more or less believing world. We don't anymore. So we have new responsibilities, okay? So I think we should take that seriously. I hope that was uh, a little bit helpful. How do we theologically understand transgenderism? Is it rejecting creation as male, female, and image of God? How articulate people outside the church? I don't think you can theologically understand transgenderism. I think that's a question of biology, psychology, sociology, and that we can apply spirituality to it. The only theological thing that I can say, I think objectively, is that a believer believes that there is an objective creation and that there is an objectively 
right from a religious perspective, expression of sexuality. Now, does that mean that biology cannot, because of that, affect sexuality? It does not mean that whatsoever. Because a, pre, a genetic predisposition, even genetic causality, is going to come back to disease. Disease in the objective sense of the word. Meaning something is supposed to be something and ended up not something. So whether you want to use disease or mutation or aberration, which now all those words are associated with negativity, whereas scientifically they're meant to be objective, okay? is to say that something went wrong with transcription, mutation, etc. That there's no news there. That happens all the time. We know that there are genetic predispositions for um, serial killers. That seems to be the case. We know that for addiction. We know that about mental health. We know that about Parkinson's. We know that about all sorts of things. And yet society is willing to say that those things aren't good. So from a scientific perspective, let's step back for a second before we add religion to it. From a scientific perspective, and I, I have a, a degree in science, so I'm not just a priest trying to act like it. I'm not also pretending to be a scientist all the time, but I'm simply saying evolution from a purely scientific perspective and only a scientific perspective, mutations are supposed to be treated scientifically neutrally, neither positive nor negative. So whether transgenderism, homosexuality, incest, whatever sexual thing is going on, what a Christian is saying is that anything short of how it's designed to be isn't right, period. I don't care where on the spectrum, I don't care. I don't care how this or that anybody wants it. Like, that's not the discussion for theology. That's a discussion for biology, physiology, psychology, sociology. That's that discussion. The only assertion being made by a Christian is anything not this is falling short. And that is not a judgment of person. Because all sin is disease. And so that's all we're saying. Um, and so there's, there's, um, there's nothing to understand other than that sin is falling short of design. That's all there is going on theologically. Um, what people want to do to use with that, that's up to them, right? And so forgive my self kind of aside here. It's a little bit um, hypocritical to me sometimes that I think secular society is very inconsistent because the biology is starting to show, not starting, but it's showing that there seems to be some genetic predisposition involved in serial killing. It's not just nurture, there seems to be some nature. There also seems to be some nature involved in incestuous behavior. The society is quick to condemn those. And so I'm saying there's something inconsistent going on here, right? Why are you labeling this one good and this one bad? 
when from a scientific perspective you shouldn't label at all so that's that's um I'll add this way, like for the to the question of, of, of the theology. I'm answering the theology. There's a follow-up question, sorry, before I move on with the atheist part. With regard to the atheist, there's also the notion that we can't prove God, so that makes us all about faith, which is to many the absence of logic. Atheists, true atheists, fail to realize acknowledge that their atheism is also faith, and that they cannot definitively disprove God the same way we can't prove him. So essentially we both rely on faith, Christians on Christ, atheists and the notion doesn't exist. You can prove neither definitively, which makes both faith. Um, I agree with you 100%. And the person who wrote this, I was thinking this morning how I still haven't replied to you, and I like was kicking myself, so I'm sorry. I agree 100%. And it is very useful, as you're saying, to point that out sometimes, right? To say that you also are accepting things that you don't know. You are doing the same thing as me you're looking at what you consider evidence to the best of your ability without knowing everything and drawing a conclusion, that is also a form of faith. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Um, and that's why I think it is important for us to find out why we believe. I, I, I get so upset with ourselves, to be honest, with, with, uh, with my fellow Christians, at how lightly we take the incarnation. It's a really big deal that Jesus Christ existed, regardless of what conclusion you reach about him. But it's a big deal that we have something very objective to work with that people can't ignore, right? They, they can disagree on how to assess him, but they still need to deal with him, right? That's a, that's a big deal. Thank you for that follow-up. Um, in... Uh, previous talk, you discussed divine romance. How can we approach human romance in a way that is union with and not in competition with divine romance? Um, very easily, by viewing everything through the lens of God, as opposed to as an aside. If the goal of your romance with a human being is God, and the means of your romance is God, the two will be inseparable. Your, your, your human romance is going to be part of and inside of your divine romance. They're not separate things. In the same way that for a celibate, it's the same thing. It's just directed completely at God and there's not um, a human being in the, in, the, in the process. But they're the same relationship. They're not different. They're not different. Um, so ask yourself, what is the goal of you? What is the objective of your relationship? If the goal of your relationship isn't God, then, then you won't be able to answer this question ever. If the goal is God, you'll see how even physical romance is a physical manifestation of the divine romance of God itself. Forgive my vulgarity here. God designed orgasm. I'm sorry that I went there. Okay, but it says something. It says something. Everything in God, as St. Paul said, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do in the Lord. Everything is holy inside of God. So I would say the simplest answer to that, no God. 
Um, how can we discern if God put something in your heart and that's why it's heavy on your mind, or if you put it there yourself by thinking about it a lot? Um, that's a good question. Number one, again, I'm going to assume that you have a spiritual guide because that would be very helpful for you in that situation because there's a lot of questions that might need to be asked because you're right. If you think about something a lot, psychologically, you're going to cement it. Right. So like if I keep thinking I need to, I need, I need, I need, or I can't, I can't, I can't, or whatever it is repetitively, I'm, I'm going to cement it. Right. Um, but when God is speaking, like he's persistent, he uses many ways. Um, it's a lot to do with the whole will of God talk last week. It's in line with the gospel. Um, it brings peace when you try and throw it, when you try and actually throw it out, like actually throw it out, it doesn't go away. He finds a billion ways to bring it back, right? There's a lot of things. Like there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of things. And a lot of it has to do with your consistent relationship with God personally, right? How you normally communicate with God to be able to say, this is not normal versus this is normal. So I'm sorry, I won't be able to answer that one too well. Like I can only answer generally. And a lot of it was what we talked about last week. Um, but I would also say that would be the best thing to also talk to your spiritual father specifically about um, to help to help discern that. I'm sorry, I know that might not be the, the answer you're looking for. Um, how can we show love to someone who doesn't want to receive love from you? Sometimes the person is hurting so bad that they seem they don't want any help from you. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you have to respect their will. Like, if they don't want it, they don't want it. But number two is make sure that you're not trying to force love on them in your way. So what you're calling love might be something they can't stand. Right? So, for example, I'm not the kind of guy to open up to people about my problems. Okay, personally. I'm, like, it's just not me. There are specific, very few and very specific people that I might. But it's not my style. And it's not because I'm better or worse. That's just my personality. Okay? So if somebody's way of showing love is, no, talk to me. Talk to me. I'm here for you. I'm going to want to punch them in the face. Right? I'm going to like, leave me alone. I don't want to talk to you. Right? So I, like, why, why do I have to? Where I was like, no, you know what you need? You need to get out. Come right now. Come over. I'm like, I don't want to come over. Okay? Like, so maybe I want to go for a walk. Maybe I want silence. Maybe I just want to binge. I don't know. Okay? And so the best thing to do is to say, um, I really want to be here, be there for you right now. Um, tell me what I can do, right? If there's something you had in mind, no problem with suggesting it and offering it, right? And let them say yes or no. And just say, okay, just tell me what you want because I, I want to be there and I also don't want to be in your face and annoy you, right? Could I do this? Could I do that? right? Um, like, maybe drop something off at their house, like, like, look for creative ways that keeps you one step distance away from the person. Um, so that you can respect their, their space. Okay, and then don't cut the doors of communication, right? So say to them, um, okay, I'm gonna back off because you, you, you've indicated you don't prefer this right now. 
I just want you to know that I'm not backing off because I don't care or because I'm disinterested. It's purely because I'm trying to respect you. Okay, so if it's okay with you, I'll just check in once in a while. But I also really want to make sure that you feel comfortable reaching out when you need to. Give them their freedom, right? Give them their, give them their freedom. Um, if you think someone is in danger, that's different. Then you might need to call for help for an intervention from someone cl closer than you to them, from an authority, from a parent, from a priest, from whoever, I don't know, like whatever the situation is. If there's an actual risk of this person's danger, no, you need to make some noise. But if it's a personality preference, respect it, right? Like my dad is not the kind of person, like when somebody dies, my dad hates people calling to say my condolences, my condolences. My mom doesn't mind it, right? Like they're just, they're two different personalities, right? So we need to be aware of like the different styles that, um, that people, that people have. Just don't force love on people because that's, that's annoying too. Um, how do I overcome the phases of stagnancy with my spiritual life and or phases where I feel that God is absent? Um, for example, Mother Teresa or Anthony Bloom mentioned this. Yeah, Mother Teresa went through it. Um, the Catholics gave a name to it that a lot of us borrow, calling it the Night of the Soul, um, which like, is from Song of Songs. So first of all, is make sure you're not diagnosing yourself because a lot of people diagnose themselves with the Night of the Soul, and it's not, okay? But they, they, they think they are. Um, so again, I, I, a lot of the times I'm going to come back with spiritual guidance, spiritual guidance, because that's a thing. It's necessary, right? In the same way that we don't go around self-diagnosing ourselves, or we shouldn't anyway, we do need to go to a doctor to objectively diagnose us. Otherwise, we could prescribe wrong treatments to ourselves or lose important treatments for ourselves, both. Um, I would say you, you need to go to somebody that you see as spiritually seasoned and disciplined um, and mature to help diagnose. Because maybe the real issue is you're living in sin, Maybe the real issue is you've been doing too much of something and you got sick of it and now you can't stand it and you think God is not there when actually it's like you went to the gym and overdid it and now you hate the gym, right? Um, you did like four hours of cardio and now you hate the treadmill and so you're like, I never want to get on that thing again, right? So there's so many different things that, that may have happened that put you in that position. So A is you need a right diagnosis. Um, because the right diagnosis will help lead to the right treatment. Maybe you're overdoing it. Maybe you need help. Um, maybe there's something you're doing wrong. Maybe you're on the weight machine and you thought that the dumbbells were supposed to be like done like this and it's not. And so you just need someone to be like, oh, that's not how you do it, buddy. Right. And that's all it was. You just need a very quick like change of, of direction and you're, and, and you're set, you're fine. Um, so that's one thing is like, like get the right diagnosis. Number two um, is faithfulness is more beautiful in my view, I can't speak for God, than faith. Because faithfulness is saying, and this is what Mother Teresa did. Mother Teresa is a fiend. I adore that woman, okay? Because what she said is, I know who you are. 
I know you're real. I know you called me. I don't need you to pamper me to love you back. I'll keep doing what I do because I love you. I'm faithful to you. That was the response. It was not to say, where are you? And how come you're not spoiling me? And where are my presents? And how come I don't get this and I don't get that? Right, which is most of us, myself included. We all, we all do that sometimes, right? Woe is me, I'm not the center of the universe. I'm sorry, I'm being a little bit um, of a jerk, but we're all, we all do that sometimes, okay? My, and again, myself included, I'm the first of it. Where, where we, we, we forget that a relationship is not about me, it's about the other person. And so the best thing you can do is remain faithful. Not to change your relationship based on your mood. When you're in a marriage, there are days where you might not be lovey-dovey about your spouse. So does that mean, I don't feel how I did about you yesterday. I guess we're divorced. That's not sensible, right? Or you're dating someone, you're getting to know them, and they didn't react the way you're expecting, and you're like, whoa, 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 game over. Didn't like that reaction. As opposed to sticking it out and saying, what do you mean? What's going on here? And that the longer you stay in the relationship, including with God, the more you learn about the other person, including God, and the easier it is to have faith because what ends up happening is now you have experience. And that's what changes everything. Because now you're not walking blindly. You're not walking based on someone's word. You now have developed experience. Okay, and that's what I think many Christians are lacking. Um, I actually think to tie it to the first question about atheism or the earlier question about atheism, I think that's the main problem. Fewer and fewer people are having spiritual experience because they're not faithful. They walk away the first time something scares them, the first time a thought disrupts them, the first time that somebody's behavior bothers them, the first time that something didn't go the way they expected it to go or they thought it was going to go. Be faithful. That, that to me is the is number one thing. Um, and get to your spiritual guide to help you to find out maybe there's something going on. I hope that was a little bit helpful. Um, can you explain the role of the spiritual father? Um, what can we um, expect from them, if anything, and what is outside of the role? Um, this is going to sound so wrong right now. Um, because this is such a commonly discussed thing and questioned thing, and something that I talk about a lot because I, I see it as a big thing, I'm going to be very honest. I was, I was spoiled rotten growing up. I happen to have had, been lucky that God put amazing guides in my life to see what discipleship looks like. So I actually have written a book, um, a short book about it, um, about what is a person's role, what is a spiritual father's role, how do you choose, how do you switch, when should I switch, um, like how do i how do i disagree right because like that's going to happen and all of that so it's being edited right now to put out to to as a very basic summary just because that by itself i think could easily be three or four weeks in a row's topic um is just spiritual guidance and discipleship 100 percent like like it's it's a lot um the role of the spiritual father let me first say what it's not is not to control you. It is not to create mini-me's. 
It is not to brainwash you. It's very simply to help navigate you and me. I get spiritual guidance too with our own vices and virtues towards God to guide us in that journey towards being the image and likeness of God and in that pursuit of unity with God, which means helping me navigate through me how to be with God, which means that this person needs to get to know you, which has duties from both sides, right? Of being able to say, okay, um, here's a person who's artistic. Okay, so for example, somebody might come to me and I like, um, I like reading, okay? I like books, I like this. Some people can't stand reading. So I can't force somebody to love reading the way that I do, right? I need to find out how can this lesson be taught in their language. I have a duty to try and find that. I'm not always going to be good at it. I'm not always going to be successful, but it's a relationship, right? You have a duty of openness, transparency, and effort. Because if you're not open, like I always tell people, what you put in is what you're going to get. Right. And so you need to be honest. You need to be very honest. Right. So for example, when I go to my spiritual father, right, even when I, I, I was forced to switch when I, when I, when I moved now, my, my current spiritual father, thank God is somebody who's known me more than half my, my, my life now. And he's seen my ups and downs. Right. But, um, during a short period where, when I had just moved to California, um, I felt the necessity, if I want real guidance when I'm asking about something, to be real about my weaknesses of saying, I'm partially asking this because I have an ego. I, I want people to see it, right? Because if I don't say, they might be like, oh, what's the problem? You just want to do this? No big deal. I think, well, the problem is that I'm doing it because I want praise. And it's like, oh, okay. So let's discuss that, right? Because that doesn't necessarily mean don't do it either. It might still be the right thing to do, but there might need to be guidance about how to go about doing it so that I'm protected from my weakness, right? Basically what it is, is like a spiritual guide is your spiritual personal trainer. That's all it is. Okay. And so your spirit, if, if you voluntarily, keyword voluntarily submit yourself to a trainer, your trainer may give you a diet sometimes right? You're going to, when you're, when you're not seeing progress, you might need to, um, um, push back a little bit and say, this exercise was too hard for me. I really, really tried, but I, I wasn't able to. Um, yeah, the reason why I'm not losing weight is because actually I haven't been eating the way that you prescribed at all. I'm sorry. I've been doing the, the exercise, but I haven't been doing the diet. And I was like, okay, this makes sense. Then why we're not seeing results. Right. And so that's the relationship. It's that give and take um, that's constantly in motion, constantly reacting to each other. And it's a real relationship that should grow over time. Um, that helps you. And it might, there may be times in your life where you find I'm not as well suited to this trainer as I thought. No problem. If the objective goal is your health, no one should be upset if you switch. Okay. Um, there might be personality clashes or it's like, no, this guy is like, athletic Nazi and I'm not like that. He screams and yells and I don't respond well to screaming and yelling. 
So for example, I respond really well personally to authoritarian figures. I don't know why I do, but I'm not like that personally. I don't think anyway to people in confession. It's not my style of dealing with others, but I really like it for me. Right. And so who I go to a spiritual father, not everybody, my spiritual father, not everyone can handle. Um, and that's not a, a point of pride on my side. It's a personality match on my side. And it's a non-match for others versus like the touchy-feely type. Like I'm kind of like that to some people. Oh, it doesn't work for me. I'm like, no, no, no. Yell at me, please. Just yell at me. I don't, I don't want you to hug me. Just yell at me. I'll tell you when I need a hug. Right. And that is just, it's a personality thing. So it's, that's the kind of a, a general um, gist of it. Um, yes, I'll let you know when that, when that comes out. Is all that guidance given in the time you confess every few weeks? So no, so confession and guidance are different things. Okay, confession, strictly speaking, is just that most of us do confession and guidance from the same person, and I recommend that. Okay, I, I don't disagree with that. Again, I just, like, this could be its own topic, and I'll try and get the book out sooner rather than later. But um, confession, strictly speaking, is here are my sins, absolve me. Strictly speaking, that's really all it is. Guidance is, is different. Guidance is more than that. And not everybody, not everybody is a good spiritual guide. And I'm not saying that thinking that I am. I don't think I am. I'm simply saying that it's, that's a gift. It's not for everybody. And, and what I differentiate is that some people have the gift of guidance, a gift of the spirit. And some people can be taught it. It's like the difference between a naturally gifted doctor and a book smart doctor. There's a value in both. The naturally gifted is the best, which we all wish we could get, right? But that doesn't demerit for anything else or the role of God. Um, in confession and, and, and guidance, because God is, is not looking to, to screw anybody over. Um, how can we make our church more inclusive and welcoming? By becoming more inclusive and welcoming yourself and myself. It's that simple. Um, love your neighbor as yourself. Don't judge. Turn the other cheek. That doesn't mean agreeing with something wrong. It just means loving everybody. If we did that, church would be amazing. We just don't do that. Um, how do you deal with the desire for marriage, but also recognizing that God could be calling you to singleness? How do you know that's what God might want for you? If you're desiring marriage, I don't think he's calling you for singleness. Okay. The calling to celibacy means you're going against nature. It is natural for you to want to be sexual because you are a sexual being. I am a sexual being. Every human being is a sexual being. In fact, being asexual is considered a disorder because everyone's, everyone's sexual, whether hetero, homo, anything, everyone's sexual. Okay. So if God wants you to go against nature, he'll tell you, and you should want him to tell you because otherwise it's a very dangerous road to take. It's a dangerous road to self-pick for yourself, in my view. Okay? Um, I mean, it's a nice offering. I mean, St. Paul says, I wish everybody would. Um, I'm not sure St. Peter would agree. Um, but there are two different ways. So if you have a real desire for marriage, when people say that to me in the context of guidance or confession, I ask them, so why are you fighting it? 
is marriage wrong that you need to fight it? I know that we fight wrong things. So if marriage isn't wrong, then why fight it? Right? So even for me, when God called me first to celibacy, and the call to the monastery was a long time coming, that I was like, okay, maybe he doesn't want me there. I actually said to God, okay, God, like you took away the marriage thing from me. Like I, 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 there was a point in my life that I considered it. So, and that's weird. That's not normal, like that I don't anymore. So if you want me to get married, put it back because I'm so confused, right? So like, let God, let God do his thing, but don't, don't fight it. Marriage is honorable. Marriage is the design of God. God said to Adam, it is not good for you to be alone. He could have said to Adam, yo, man, I'm God. You got me. Are I not enough for you? And he didn't. He said, here's Eve. Here's your equal. Here's a help equal to you. Coming from you so that you don't treat her like an animal because she's your equal. The animals, I made them separately and you named them. Eve comes from you. She's your equal. She's not some animal. Right? So this is the design of God is good. Right? It's not, it's not a bad thing. From Mr. Yessa in California, the only one to put his name. What do, why do we call it fasting if the day goes by so slow? Um, um, I thought I'd give you a shout out, Anthony, if you're even on here. Can someone be single and living alone? with plans of never getting married, being consecrated, and or live a monastic life, is this a sin? I would say that that person is already consecrated. Because they've already been consecrated to my room. So whether single or married, it's for the Lord. So as long as they're not intentionally choosing to be single for a wrong reason, there's nothing wrong with that. There is no such thing as, as formal monasticism when St. Paul was preaching. And he said, I wish that you were all like me. And you know what? I think that the testimony of those who are not married in the world is helpful. In a world that overvalues, in my view, sexuality, those who remain single are teaching the world something simply by remaining single. Even if they're not nuns and even if they're not monks and even if they're not in brotherhoods or sisterhoods or whatever they're in, okay, they're doing something valuable as long as it is for the Lord. Excellent. And for the Lord doesn't mean holy orders, right? It just means for the Lord. It means that every deed that I do is in the name of God. And a person who's not married actually has more time to give to others. They have more time to help each other because they don't have the constraints that families do, right? For me, for example, the celibate priest, it's easier for me than it is for a married priest, for example. And I don't mean just in priesthood, even in non-priesthood, but it's easier for me to respond on a minute's notice to go somewhere because there's no family at home to calculate for. Oh, am I gonna be there when they get back from school? Um, no, I need to support my wife and I also need my wife. Um, what about the kids? What about this? I don't have that constraint, right? So for example, some people need more time and care than others. I think that those who are not married are better positioned to help those people than those who are married. 
So as long as they, as long as everybody lives according to the gospel, um, then we're good. As I would say, be yourself, don't sin. Um, I'm unable to get past the co-benefit relationship with God. How to get closer to God personally beyond repenting after sin and praying for earthly things. By getting to know who God is, right? I'm going to, with some of these questions, point out the premises that we sometimes have. Did God create us with any agenda other than just love? He didn't ask for anything other than to be in this relationship. So if I make my relationship with God about the mistakes, I'm the one imposing that on God, not God on me. Okay? So for example, if I have a friend, actually, I'll I'll, I'll use a different example. Okay? Um, Because of my, my illness, I hated gaining weight. I hate gaining weight. And I'm, I was super sensitive about the weight gain. So every single human being that I would talk to, I'd be like, I'm gaining weight because of my disease. I'm getting weight disease because of my disease. And I'd say it to everybody and their mom, okay? The reality is most people couldn't care less how fat or not I am. I'm the one who cares. They didn't care. So if I frame my relationship with others around this point, I'm the one missing out on having a better conversation with people. Right, where they're like, well, we're happy to talk about other things. I mean, if you really just want to talk about this, okay, that's like, go, ahead, go for it. But like, that's really not what we care about. That's not why we talk to you. That's not why we're friends. Right? So if I deal with God in that way, then that's how I'm going to, that's my relationship. That's what it's going to look like. God benefits nothing from me. Nothing. Because there's nothing that I have that I didn't receive. First and foremost of which is my life. And that's why we say to God, we offer you from what's yours. What can we offer that's not already yours? You gave us allowance and I'm using allowance to buy you a gift, but it's your money. And God's saying, I rejoice in you. Period. There is no however. My relationship to you is father, friend, brother. All of them. I love you in all of those ways. And so everything we do is about how do I respond to that? How do I be a son? How do I be his ambassador, how do I be his friend? That's what's on me. And he told us how. He said, just love me. And then people said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, if you love me, keep my commandments. And they're like, oh, wow, what a jerk. So then you say, okay, Lord, what is the greatest commandment? To love. What does it mean to love? He said, to love God above all my neighbors yourself. What does it mean to love my neighbor? And he gives the story of the Good Samaritan. And then he goes to the top of a mountain and says, you want to know what love looks like? Let me tell you what love looks like. It means turning the other cheek. It means walking the extra mile. It means not judging. 
It means giving things to people. It means not looking for your personal rights. If you live like that, you will see the difference in your relationship with God because you'll see the Holy Spirit dwell within you and grow and you'll start seeing God's response to you. And you become a participator in the life of Christ, not a spectator. Uh, if marriage is the design of God and we were created for this, how come many remain single for so long, although desiring and actively pursuing marriage? Because humans are dumb. Sorry, like, like God's not doing that. We did that. So, for example, people used to get married at like 17. Now we're like 30-something and older. God didn't do that. Humans did that. So the design of God is there, and you know it because you want it. <laughs> like, you, like you want to get married or you don't. But the, but the, the problem is that human create, humans create um, socially, culturally, right? Like I, like, I don't know why it became a law that you need a degree, but that became somehow a law somewhere, right? I don't know when it became a law that, like, okay, like, finish med school. Apparently, that's, like, holy. I don't know. We did that. God didn't do that. Uh, we claim that we have free will, but if we don't choose to follow God, we are basically sent to hell. How is that free will, and how can we see God as selfish? So, again, I'm not being antagonistic, but I want to point out the premises that appear to be in this question. So there seems to be a premise that consequence means I didn't have free will. There seems to be a premise that God sends me to hell as opposed to me choosing hell. And more dangerous to me, not because I'm offended for God, don't get me wrong, I don't need to lawyer for God, he can do that for himself. But to say that, can't we see God as selfish, is to suggest that God making you is because he wanted something from you. And he didn't. So there's absolutely nothing God remotely needs from you. So no, there's no selfishness because God, there's nothing you can add to God. If you could, he's not God. If God needs you, actually needs you somehow for his existence to be complete, then this is a sucky religion. I'll be the first to walk out. Okay? Because we would need to completely rework our theology. We would need a new theology where I'm equally God to him because he needed me to be that. Or be a demigod and go the Greek way or go whatever. The Christian claim is not that. So no, there's no selfishness because he straight up doesn't need you. Second, you need to ask what is hell? Because we don't know what it is. Is it burning flames? Is it living in regret? I don't know. I don't, if you think you know, then there must be, and I'm not being sarcastic, then you must know by some special revelation. 
because none of us know. Okay? And so, for example, Isaac the Syrian, this is just a model. I'm not saying this is what hell is. Says hell is like the story of the prodigal son. It's burning in the love of God. And he goes, look at the story of the prodigal son and fast forward to the end of the story. Baba throws a party. Younger son is rocking. Older son is mighty angry. And he says, now imagine if you take the father and the two sons after the party's over and sit them down in one room. One of them loves the father for his mercy and forgiveness. And the other hates his guts for his mercy and forgiveness. It is not the father imposing something on the older son. It's the older son choosing to view the father in that way. So, no, God's not being selfish. And having free will and the existence of hell are not contradictory concepts. What you seem to have presumed is that God has some kind of ego problem. And he's very sad when people call him bad names. And so he says, I don't like you. I'm going to lock you up in a room and say bad things to you and light you on fire until, until forever. I don't think that's a sound view of hell. Okay? So if that's what you think hell is, then I agree with you. There's something funky going on there. Whereas hell is a decision. In the words of the late Bishop Ruiz, I think a modern saint, he said, I, I feel like anybody in hell must have tried really hard to go there. Because it is so easy to go to heaven. So I would rather focus on that, that God is looking for the very little. He's not looking for reasons to do anything to me. He says, it is my father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I am not groaning and whining and trying my best to not send you to heaven. In fact, I came so that you have life. Okay? So, I, I, I be careful with what, with what you think. Challenge your premises about what you think about God. Fair question. I'm not annoyed at the question, but just challenge your premises. What is the intersection between God granting us a spouse versus how much of it is just a consequence of people's free will? Um, I actually discussed that in particular last week. Cole's notes version of it is if God actually specifically wants you to marry somebody, he will let you know. If not, as long as you're living according to the gospel and you're doing things the right way, marry whoever you want. God rarely got involved in people's marriage in the Bible. So much so that we only mentioned the exceptions of the millions and billions of people that existed. You can list 20 in the Bible at most, if that. I don't even know if there's 20. It's probably more in the order of 10. So chill. Don't worry about it. The problem is that we sometimes overly um, analyze and we think that there's got to be this, this, this one. And I think that that can cause guilt. And on the other hand, it can make us flee responsibility. Those are two extremes that we sometimes uh, take. Is it possible for people to become friends with the opposite sex if they've already acted like they're in a relationship? If so, what are the steps to take? I don't think so. How do you unknow that? Someone says, I like you more than in a friend way. 
how do you unknow that? Like, I'm not being mean. Like, I'm not being sarcastic. How do you unknow that? The minute that you've invested in saying that, you've taken a risk. Which you're allowed to take. That's not wrong. Like, it's not wrong to be in a relationship with someone. Right? But the minute that you embarked on saying more than what's normal, it's no longer normal. I'm sorry. Like, like let's, be, let's be realistic. Um, and there are secular people that stay the same. There's a song by James T.W. called Boys and Girls. Um, highly recommend it. It's a good song. Um, but follow up with another one if I'm missing the, the point of it. I'm really sorry. And I, again, I'm not being um, sarcastic. I'm just trying to be really, really real about it. Um, questioning historical dogmatic issues prevents me from progress in spiritual life. For example, questioning Chalcedon, can EOOO both be the church? Issues like this. That shouldn't prevent you from growing in your spiritual life. Because Jesus will remain Jesus no matter how dumb humans are. Okay? Um, where there are humans, there will be mistakes. And everybody claims to be right all the time. So what you have to do is your due diligence. That's all. Even among the disciples, the disciples said, look at those people over there doing this thing in your name. Should we stop them? So even when Christ was alive, they were having these debates. While Christ was alive, the disciples of John the Baptist were annoyed that Jesus was doing miracles when they saw that Jesus did more miracles and was baptizing more than John, is what it says. Then they said, what's going on here? And John says, go ask him, is this the one? Okay, so these fights existed from the beginning. The disciples fought from the beginning, saying, yo, Lord, like, we're on your right and left, right? Like, mean, and, and can you imagine how annoyed the rest of the disciples were? Like, are we like a bag of, of, of guavas? Um, like, why are you on the right and left, and, and who are we? And the Lord foresaw all of this. That look at what his final prayer was in Gethsemane unity. All he talked about in his final prayer is, Lord, keep them as one, keep them as one, keep them as one. And that if they're not one, he said, he goes, how will people know that me and you are one when they're one? So you have to want oneness, but never at the expense of truth. Okay? So humans have made mistakes. The Eastern Orthodox claim to be the church. The Oriental Orthodox proclaimed to be the church. The Roman Catholic Church proclaimed to be the church. The Evangelical Assembly of Churches claims to be the church. The local neighborhood corner church says the church of God, which always would make me laugh. I'm like, oh, there it is. There's the church. They, I found it. It's on Dundas in Maine. Okay, everybody is making the claim. Okay. 
pursue God. Do your due diligence and search. My own personal opinion, obviously I'm in the Oriental Orthodox Church for a reason, but my own personal um, opinion is that how God sees the church is completely different than how humans see the church. We're a fractured body. And the arm is trying to say it's the whole body. And the leg is trying to say it's the whole body. And the toenail is trying to say it's the whole body. And God is saying, my body is fractured. You'll only be united in me. So don't let that be your obstacle to spiritual growth because... Let me ask you a question that you obviously don't have to answer here. When you were 10 years old, did you know what an historian or monophysite was? I'd be surprised if you did. Most people don't. Was God less real to you when you didn't know what those were? So to define your relationship about uh, with God as being dependent on a historical controversy, you've got to ask why that is. Because if the obstacle is because you're saying, is Christ divided or not divided, that's got merit. It's got merit. Because then it becomes a question of, am I worshiping a divine God, a divine only, or am, I or am I worshiping a human being? But if it's because of the politics of ecclesiology, then there's something wrong. Then there's something wrong. So, Pursue God and pursue truth. Um, because truth manifests itself. If it's any consolation to you on this particular issue, officially, regardless of what politics happen on a lay level, what priests and bishops and monks you've heard say what? Officially. The Eastern Orthodox patriarchs, signed the agreed statements of doctrine that we are orthodox and we also who were calling them not orthodox signed those same documents as a synod which means that officially we consider one another orthodox but anyone fight the way they want to fight on an official level that is what we have said on an official level the Roman Catholic Church signed 1971 or 73 between Pope John VI and Pope Shenouda III that we do not consider one another Monophysites or Nestorians and that both have a true and valid and clear Christology. So if that's any help to you, that's there officially. But I wanted to say first, it shouldn't be your obstacle. Because God is one, period. Okay? Um, how do we adjust? Um, I'm going to cap it at 11 Eastern, so 8, 8 Pacific, if that's okay for you guys. Um, these, are, these are great questions. Hold on, let me see if there's a follow-up here. Uh,
Uh, I was listening to the God's Will reboot. I loved um, something that was said, which is whenever I feel anything like I'm worried, you recommended to switch it all to prayer. Lord, I'm worried. Um, but then I felt like my relationship was all about me. That's very mature for you to notice. Anything based on feelings seems selfish. But then taking the academic route, uh, the, the academic route is isolating. I feel like I'm forcing relationship, using all the methods or tactics I've been told. What would you say is the most important thing to be consistent with, even without feelings? Um, so this is very mature. I would say the next step is to is to talk to God about God instead of talk to God about you. Right? Or just saying, I'm going to keep living the way that you like. I'm going to keep living for you. And I trust that if you have something that you want me to do, you'll tell me. And in the meantime, I'm just going to live the gospel because that's what you want. That's what glorifies you. That's what gives a good ambassadorship to you. Now it's directed at the to you, not to the to me. Um, that would be the next step to take it. That's very, that's awesome. Um, on the same note, actually, how do we adjust the mindset that our life is not divided into spiritual secular, but rather that spiritual life sanctifies our secular one and they become unified? It's as simple as seeing what you just said. Like, like the answer is what you said. It's saying that spiritual life is like putting on glasses. It's the prism through which to see the world. It's not a different world. Once I see that, like once I recognize that I was created, because when I, when, I, when I can recognize that I'm created, that begs the question of purpose. Why was I made? And then now I can ask, is what I'm doing, is how I am living in line with the why? And then that is the question that dictates every act that I take. And you will actually find yourself liberated. It's whenever we've walked away from that, that we've struggled. To give like a minor example, when humans made wealth the biggest deal in life, as opposed to just living, to what it used to, we went from a people that valued art, philosophy, nature, To money. What did that change? What professions we valued? What relationships we valued? What families were better and not better? Just a simple switch of why has done centuries of damage, millennia of damage, actually. So if we come back to the why, everything flows and I'll have a lot more freedom to be myself actually, not the opposite. I'll find that I'm allowed to be me as opposed to feeling like I need to fit into some societal mold. Come back to purpose, objectivity. Why couldn't Christ have been a woman? I don't know. 
I, I, I legit don't know. He just wasn't. So could he have been? Sure. But like, in for whatever way that he is and isn't, he isn't. It's as simple as that to me. Like, it's, it's, it's like saying like, why didn't my dad become an engineer? I, I don't know. He didn't. He became a pharmacist. Um, it's a matter of being more than it is a matter of choice. And so I, I don't know why God is what he is. I, I, I don't think anyone knows why he is what he is. I don't know. Um, I'm not being facetious and I'm not being sarcastic. I don't know. Um, and if I told you otherwise, I'd be making it up. Um, is it actually possible for a person to feel someone else's pain or suffering? Sometimes I feel that my physical or mental pain is not mine, or is this the devil? Um, it could be either. You would need to talk to your guide. Um, if you didn't pray for it, then I don't think it's from God. But there are those, and this is dangerous, and I do not recommend that you do this without guidance. There are those who have reached certain spiritual levels where they do ask God to carry suffering in another person's place. Um, I, I don't have that gift, um, and I don't recommend that you do that. Um, without guidance. It can be very presumptuous um, to, to do that. It can be. It's not always, but it can be very presumptuous. So I would be very, very careful about doing something like that. Is it possible though? Yes, it is. Um, it is possible. Um, is it wrong to have a lot of money saved and invested? This money could do so much good to other people in need. I'm going to be unpopular right now, and I know that some people might throw knives at me. I would say yes, it's wrong. It's not necessarily wrong, but yes, it could very well be wrong. What you would need to examine is, are you accumulating wealth and ignoring your brother? Right? Like, again, I know we talk about the social justice talk. And I'm not going to rehash it. And I'm not going to compare causes. But how many people are as worked up about poverty as they are about other social issues right now? Imagine during COVID what it's like to be a homeless person right now. No one wants to touch anything for months. Nobody wants to see anybody. Everyone is locked in their doors. So even their main source of income, begging, was taken away from them. The number of beds was already limited. And now it's even more fearsome because you need to social distance. And so I have to ask, myself as I order skip the dishes and Uber Eats what it's like for the guy on the street. So we've got to be we've got to be very careful with that. Um I've become aware that the devil can be listening in on my prayers. Yes, that's what we we're talking about a little bit earlier. My instinct has been to pray silently. Why are interior prayers so difficult versus out loud? I think because you feel like you have to. Whenever anyone feels that they have to do something, it becomes harder. Right? That's our, that's like not, and we don't like limitation, like instinctually. Right? So it's like, I might not care about not traveling much, but if it becomes a rule that I can't travel much, suddenly I might be annoyed. Right? So it's probably just dealing with um, feeling like you can't, quote unquote. 
But I think if you switch your mindset to, oh, this is a good idea, you might find it easier. But I'd also say, don't be afraid to pray aloud. Like, don't be, don't be, don't be afraid of it. Um, can he also see if we're writing down? Definitely he can. Um, what I would say is like something that's a big deal that you're trying to discern God's will about. That's what I'd be very quiet about. So that he doesn't try and confuse it. Because praying out loud for people, no problem. Right? Praying about, about something natural, no problem. But when you're trying to figure out God's will, that's where he might cause your problem. So those are the ones that I would try and be silent more about. Whereas the rest, feel free. Right? Feel free. In anything, feel free. There's no rule about it. Right? It's, it's, just, um, it's just advice. If the original purpose, this will be the last one, it's almost 11, um, and I'll save the rest for later because I think there's about 15 more. Um, if the original purpose of paradise was to live eternally with God, then why did he place the serpent there? Sounds like we were set up to fall sooner or later. So wrong premises in the question that we're being set up to fall that God placed the serpent there, like actively said, here, come here, be here, and do this to my kids. Okay. Um, and that paradise was only that garden. Those are all wrong premises. The earth was good and everything in it was good. And all the earth was good. And all the earth was and is the Lord's. So the serpent, which was a representation or a manifestation of the devil, is because of how nice actually and how fair God is. Because when the, when the, when the demons came to be, which are just fallen angels, that's all they are, they weren't stripped of their rank. They weren't stripped of their being. And so angels are also called um, ministering spirits. They minister to nature. They minister to animals. They minister to humans. They have rules. And so an angel that would have already been roaming the earth, if they chose to go with Lucifer, continued to be in the earth. And so the devil was simply being where the devil usually would be. That's all. God didn't put him there. God didn't say, go get him. Let's see what they're going to do. Right? And that's why God's response to our mistake was to fix it for us. That's what he did. So no, we were definitely not set up to fall. If you want to see yourself as set up to fall, the real question you should ask is, why did God give me a choice? And my personal response to that is, the only way, the only ability you have to love is because you have choice.
without choice, you are incapable of loving anything because you can never choose it. That's why love is not an emotion. Love is to make my will the same as the thing in front of me. It's to submit my will to something else. It's to choose. And that's, that's what God wanted because God, because God is love. And because God is autonomous and made us in his own image and likeness, he gave you that ability to be exactly like him in that. That's not setting you up to fail. That's setting you up to love. That's setting you up to live forever. That's a big gift. It's a gift that most of us don't give to people. How many of us really are willing to give everybody full freedom? God said, I give you so much freedom that you can do this. I give you so much freedom that you can deny me. You can hate me. You can reject me. I accept. Most of us can't handle that. And God said, I'll take it and I'll remain your dad. And I'll call you my own and I'll love you anyway. So no, it's 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 not a, a premise of that. Um, I will wrap uh, this up. Um, I'm having a service uh, change um, in the next two months. It looks like I may be going to uh, Vancouver. I'm not sure yet. I'm still waiting to hear back from Amba Mina and Amba Sarabion and Amba Bodas because there's some of that. So there's a possibility that I might take a hiatus. Um, in August to do my goodbyes um, in uh, Ontario before heading out. That may change in a moment, like I'm waiting to hear back, but just as a heads up. Um, so we'll all keep everyone updated. Um, so please keep me uh, in your prayers. And um, we'll end with our Father before we all bounce. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, my Lord, hear us through the intercessions and prayers of your Holy Mother, the Piotoko, St. Mary. The great St. Anthony, St. Pope Cordo, St. Mina, and all your saints, when we pray, thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not in temptation. But lead us from the evil one in Christ, you said, Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and glory forever and ever. Amen.